0: This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. Every day, it seems we acquire new examples of how out of its mind our culture is. Here's a case in point. Ibram Kendi, a Boston University humanities professor, recently tweeted out that we should eliminate the term not racist from the human vocabulary, because as he sees it, we are either being racist or being anti-racist, but you can't just be not a racist. And it's this kind of thinking that is making our society... an increasingly oppressive one where social justice warriors and feminists and sexual radicals tell us how we have to think and talk and engage and live even if their positions are completely disconnected from common sense and reality. Whatever happened to reason and whatever happened to freedom? Big questions on the table. We're going to tackle them today with Dr. Gad Satt who is professor of marketing at the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University and host of the popular YouTube show The Sad Truth and author of the book we'll be talking about called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Dr. Sad. so great to have you with us. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. We are really in this time where infection is on people's minds because of COVID-19, but talk a little bit about people in America and the West who have made this move from valuing free speech and reason and rational thought to embracing these idea pathogens, as you like to call them. What has happened with us?
2: Right. So I actually argue that while, of course, the COVID crisis is a very serious one, and we should, you know, be careful and so on. There's been a global pandemic of the human mind that's been raging for 40, 50 years. Now it was spawned within the university ecosystem, but now these dreadful ideas have seeped their way into every nook and cranny of society. And so in the book, what I do is I argue that in the same way that animals can be parasitized by actual brain worms, rendering them uh, maladaptive in their behavior, human beings can be parasitized by idea pathogens, ideas that can cause us to walk into the abyss of infinite lunacy, (laughs) unconcerned with our rejection of reason and science and common sense, It's truly dreadful, and uh, we need to defeat it.
0: Oh, for sure. And you talk about the fact that it has been over the last 40, 50 years, as you just mentioned, that these ideas have taken root and really messed us up. But to what would you attribute the origins of this problem? Would it be postmodernism? Would it be something beyond that? I mean, we talk a lot about identity politics and social justice and all this, but what is the original bad idea that led to where we are now?
2: So certainly postmodernism is the granddaddy of idea pathogens, because it rejects the epistemology of truth. It basically says there are no objective truths. Right. Everything is constrained by our subjectivity, our personal biases. So you might imagine how that's a very nihilistic, very anti-science position, because scientists do wake up every day thinking that there are natural truths to be discovered. Otherwise, what's the point of getting out of bed? Yes. Now, of course, scientific truths change what we thought was true scientifically 300 years ago we might have updated 300 years later so science is is humble it recognizes that truths are provisional but we do wake up under the working assumption that there are truths postmodernism completely blows that premise out of the waters and says no no everything is subjective and now why have all of these idea pathogens started and we could talk about other other idea pathogens in a second they all share an original desire of some noble cause, right? (laughs) Uh, So militant feminism started off with a reasonable idea, right? I mean, we'd we'd all agree that uh, men and women should be equal under the law. That's called equity feminism. The problem with then militant feminism is it pushes it much further. It says, well, for us to ensure that we don't live in a sexist status quo, we must reject that men and women are, are different. We must make them indistinguishable beings. Everything that is different about them must be due to social construction. Nothing must be due to biology. So, in the pursuit of an original noble goal, you then end up murderer, murdering and raping truth, and that's simply wrong.
0: Oh, you're right about that. And, and they're really hypocrites when it comes right down to it, because as you mentioned, yeah, post-modernism is all about, there's no such thing as absolute truth, which they, you know, obviously now have turned on its head, and they are the ones who are acting like the intolerant Puritans that they have previously accused Judeo Christian, you know, Americans of having been in in a previous age. I mean, who who engages in this kind of, you know, hunt and kill sort of thing more than the left right now and the postmodernists, they're the ones who are going around with their cancel culture. If you don't think right and if you don't you know, toe the line on everything we want to do with identity politics, then you'll lose your job, you'll get kicked off social media. they're I mean, they're really hypocrites when it comes right down to it.
2: Oh, absolutely. And listen, I could tell you this as someone who is one of the rare—I mean, I'm probably, undoubtedly, if I may say, with, with no pretense of false modesty, the professor who is most outspoken about a very wide range of academic sacred cows— And I can tell you, the the way that people come after you, I mean, if I criticize Serena Williams because of her cretinous behavior at the end of the final a couple of years ago, where she was a sore loser, then I start getting people tagging my university, because how dare I criticize a noble woman of color? Now, imagine it from my perspective. I escaped Lebanon as a Lebanese Jew under imminent threat of execution, because we saw as Lebanese Jews, what identity politics, what tribalism does to a society. Mm. So imagine now, 45 years later, that I'm seeing this exact same reflex of tribalism being instituted as part of the central platform of one of the two American parties. It's, it's insane.
0: Yeah. That and that's a really good point because you've been through it. You've seen how it ends up, and you see how destructive it is to a society. So why don't these people see this? Is it a matter of putting their feelings above any sort of academic thinking skills they may have required along the way? Acquired along the way.
2: Well, I think it's, it goes back and harks back to what I said earlier when I mentioned that in the pursuit of an original noble goal, they end up murdering truth. So. Yes, of course, we should live in a society that is as free as possible from institutional bigotry and so on. But in the pursuit of that laudable goal, we don't then start uh, attacking another group of folks. So now, for example, white fragility and white supremacy and white privilege and and, and the rest of it has become a completely normalized and acceptable way – to attack a whole bunch of people who share a similar skin, you how is that different from the earlier racism? So, so the cognitive inc- inconsistency and the moral hypocrisy is simply baffling. Yeah,
0: well, right. It's the most racist thing of all to display that kind of prejudice when you don't even know people. How can you presume to know what they're thinking or what their life story has been if you've not if you have no in- intimate knowledge of that person? You have no right to just you know use this sweeping generalization to describe every person with a certain skin color
2: exactly
0: yeah it's frustrating exactly right. it's frustrating what about this idea that you can't express truth though if it offends somebody or somebody gets his feelings hurt if you say something a certain way because obviously we are emotional people but we also have to be thinkers and use reason and logic what 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 about this idea that if I hurt somebody's feelings I'm gonna be at fault no matter whether or not what I said was true
2: right so here I would argue that we, we need to look at two ethical systems there is one ethical system called deontological ethics, which basically operates with absolute truths. So, for example, if I were to say to you, it is never okay to lie, that would be a deontological statement. Consequentialist ethics is where you say whether you should do something or not as a function of the consequences of your actions. So, for example, if you want to have a long-lasting marriage and your spouse says, do I look fat in those jeans, you <laughs> might want to lie to Protect the feelings of your spouse and have a happy evening, if not a happy marriage. Now, the reality is we we all navigate through both ethical systems. Sometimes we are consequentialist, sometimes we are deontological. But when it comes to matters of the truth with a capital T, we should always only be deontological. I never sacrifice one millimeter of the truth to pursue some noble social cause.
0: Right. And that that is a really important thing for people to understand because I think that sometimes you do have people operating with the wrong kind of, you know, consequential ethics, as you mentioned before when really they need to understand the difference between those two categories. We're going to take a very short break. We're going to come back, though, with Dr. Gad Sad. The name of the book is the Parasitic Mind. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. If you could provide God's Word to a Bible-less believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the Ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to read the Bible, but what happens,
2: there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will uh, be sharing the single Bible
0: For only $5 Believers around the world Will receive Bibles And be discipled In their new faith $35 sends 7 Bibles $100 sends 20 And because of a matching gift Right now Your gift will be doubled Call 800-YES-WORD 800 E S W O 800-YES-WORD Or there's a banner to click At janetmefford.com. Are you in need Of a healthcare program? You're in luck As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us, and great to have with us Dr. Gadsad, Professor of Marketing at the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University and author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. And they certainly are. One of the things that you talk about with freedom of speech and other concepts that we have long held as a society to be very, very important, you say these qualities that we've historically held to are much better concepts on which to base a culture and a society than the current popular ideas of diversity and inclusion and equity. And of course, we see those, uh, especially on college campuses, that's just been driven home all the time. But why is that? Why, why is it important to return to those original concepts that really have made society function in a much healthier way?
2: Because there, there are really two things you want to achieve. And I, I talk about this in chapter one of the parasitic mind. What are the two ideals that I seek to always defend and pursue And I call these truth and freedom. Well, you can't pursue truth if you're not free to say what you want, if you're not free to engage in free inquiry, right? Right. So they, they are coupled together. They go together. So in academia, you now have this concept of forbidden knowledge, right? Don't pursue certain scientific projects if it's going to hurt someone's feelings. Don't study sex differences, because if the results come out in a way that is against the politically correct orthodoxy, well, then that wouldn't be good. Well, I don't base my decision of which research questions to tackle or not as a function of the downstream effects. I mean, think about if we applied this to physics. Don't study physics, because the Americans are going to unleash two atomic bombs on uh, the Japanese in World War II, right? Right. So I am a pursuer of knowledge and truth. Therefore, my only objective is to be honest in that pursuit. So I adhere to the scientific method with full honesty. I'm not biased in my approach. Now, how people use or misuse that knowledge should never be something that determines whether I should do that project or not. So freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, uh, the pursuit of truth is what elevates us as human beings. That's what led me to leave Lebanon to come to the West. Millions of people leave these horrible societies, because of these values in the West, and we're just giving them away in a grand collective suicide. It's unbelievable.
0: Yeah, it really is. But is are we back to the same problem? If you have a generation, or maybe two now, that have been steeped in the idea that there's no such thing as absolute truth, how do you even bring them around to the idea that truth and freedom are inextricably connected, and we have to value it, or else we're really going to collapse ideologically as a culture?
2: Well, look, it's a a long battle. As you said, I mean, and as I said earlier in the chat, it took 40, 50 years of brainwashing to get us to where we are. The the problem is not going to be eradicated overnight. But what we can certainly do to expedite the process of recovery is to not subcontract our responsibility onto others. So what I often get is, you know, thousands of emails from people, from parents, from students, from uh, professors saying, Hey, Dr. Saad, thank you so much for the fight that you're doing. You know, it gives me great hope, but please don't mention my name that I support you. <laughs> well, that last sentence is, is right there is the problem. Well, what do you mean? What are you so afraid in publicly, if you don't even have the courage to publicly support the one who's putting everything on the line, then we are certain to lose the battle. Yeah. But if collectively we all decide we've had enough, you can't teach my children that boys too can menstruate. Now, by the way, This doesn't mean that I don't support transgender rights. When it comes to all people living free of bigotry, I'm about as socially liberal as they come. But again, in the pursuit of that laudable goal, I don't murder truth. I don't accept the fact that my children are going to learn that sometimes boys menstruate and sometimes girls menstruate. Mm. No, only women menstruate. Yep.
0: Yep, that's right. There are no pregnant men. I, it just drives me crazy. And I think a lot of women crazy. Uh, you're not a man. You don't know what it's like to be pregnant. I, and this is the biophobia. I love that term that you, you coin and you talk about in yeah. the book, the fear of biology, which comes up not only with the transgender ideology, but radical feminism. Can you speak to that problem of biophobia and why it is that people... Are so willing to accept anti scientific concepts. I mean, just the idea that Bruce Jenner and a Corset on the magazine cover would cause everybody <laughs> to say, "Let's call him She" from now on. And you look around, and you go, "Are you people all nuts?" That's a man with exactly. a mental problem. Somebody help him.
2: Well, so the, the the first manifestation of biophobia that I that I noticed was in my scientific work. So in my scientific work, I'm known as the the person who pioneered the use of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to study consumer behavior. So the idea is that until I came along, typically consumer psychologists thought that consumers simply learn their preferences, right? It's advertisements, it's your peers, it's your parents, it's uh, your rabbi and uh, your priest, It's, it's everything but biology. And so most social scientists were steeped in this idea that biology is relevant to explain the behavior of the mosquito, the zebra, and your dog, but don't you dare say that biology matters for the human condition. Well, that's insane. What do you mean? I mean, when a woman goes through her menstrual cycle, she has different consumatory preferences. I mean, the average five-year-old would know that, but yet somehow, in the social sciences, you weren't allowed to say that. So that was the first instantiation of biophobia that I saw, and since then, I've seen it in many of the other cases that you enumerated.
0: Yeah, it's and and the thing is, it's so illogical and it's so out there. There are almost no words to describe how frustrating it is to be caught in that web where you are demanded to bow the knee to what people are saying to you. Men can be pregnant and men can become women and women can become men and all of this. You begin to think you're the crazy one after a while when you're surrounded with this because there's so much pressure to conform.
2: Exactly. And it, just to give you a sense of how insane the whole thing is, in 2017, I appeared in front of the Canadian Senate to testify on a bill. The bill was called Bill C-16, which has since passed, which was seeking to incorporate gender identity and gender expression under the you know, the hate crime uh, rubric. Yeah. And I came along, not, not because I wasn't supportive supportive of the right of transgender people to live free of bigotry but i wanted to warn against the slippery slope i wanted to tell people look you here are some of the ideological consequences of some of this lunacy to which at the, and by the way i'm an evolutionary psychologist so i study things like sex differences so it's, it's right up my wheelhouse that's why i was invited at the end of my very sober testimony, one of the liberal senators pointed to me and said, you're pro-genocide, you're pro-genocide, Ugh. to which I answered, it, it may not be a good idea to be telling someone who escaped execution in Lebanon that he's pro-genocide. Yeah. And This is the kind of discourse we have.
0: Why in the world would he accuse you of being pro-genocide?
2: Because his, from his perspective is, why is it that you would be testifying here against a bill that seeks to protect transgendered people. Well, of course, that's not what I was there for. So what I was there was to say things like, well, if I'm teaching in my evolutionary psychology class and I'm talking about sexual selection, which is one of the mechanisms by which, you know, species evolve, that Darwinian theory. Well, I talk about male and female. So is someone going to come to me and say, but but, professor, you're transphobic. There are 873 genders. So I was basically trying to demonstrate that to have the government dictate what we can say or what we can't say, what is hateful or not, is a very, very bad idea, right? It's the tyranny of the minority then holds us on a leash. But he didn't see all that. All he saw is, why would you be testifying here? You must be a genocidal maniac. I mean, it's insane.
0: It it is. And and it really kind of cuts the discourse off, doesn't it? When you are all all of a sudden shouted down, whether it's being called pro-genocide or you're a white supremacist or you're a bigot or you're homophobe or whatever somebody calls you. The power of the insult seems to have gained a lot of power indeed, hasn't it? You're either a victim or you're a bigot and nobody gets to be in the middle
2: exactly and and what bugs me about this is that uh, there's so much power given to the to people calling you that so that most of the cowardly folks end up doing nothing because they don't want to fall prey to that appellation right yeah. Yeah. What I would say instead is activate your inner honey badger. Okay, yes. So chapter eight, I talk <laughs> about that, right? A honey badger is extraordinarily fierce. It's the size of a small dog, but you could have six adult lions approach it and they run away out of intimidation, right? Because it is so fierce. So, and that's exactly how I conduct myself. If you come after me, you better come correct, as we say, because I'm coming after you worse than a honey badger. Not because I'm arrogant, not because I'm mean, but because I believe in my principles and I'm ready to defend them. And if you come after me with these kinds of insults, I'm coming after you, after your parents, after your dead ancestors. There is no end to how far I go. So you have to really muster that type of Fine, right? So that you are indignant at people abusing you and wrongly accusing you.
0: Well, that's great. And and the thing that really strikes me when you're saying that is what gives you that kind of fierceness and that kind of courage to do what you're explaining there is conviction. And and when you think about younger generations coming up, if you have you know Generation Z being steeped in identity politics and intersectionality and all of this nonsense that's just being crammed down their throats twenty four seven. Where did they get that education to recover what has always been common sense? In the family, certainly, that's a very important place. But what of that? How do you do that when you're talking about an educational system that, by and large, has capitulated to this identity politics mentality?
2: Well, that's the beauty of these idea passages, if I may say. Of course, they're dreadful, but they're also brilliant, right? Because think about it, if I could draw an analogy. In advertising, there are certain moral, legal, and ethical principles that dictate when you're allowed to target advertisements to children. And typically the argument is you should only target children when they have the cognitive ability to know that you're trying to persuade them to do something, like yeah. buy something. Yeah. So it might be 10 years old, it might be 12 years old. That's the beauty of the brainwashing. I got to get to those children as early as possible so that when they are 20, they don't have the honey badger convention to fight against your nonsense.
0: Wow. Well, it's all such an important subject for everybody to wrap their heads around and really take to heart what you're saying, because an entire culture really is at stake when we are surrounded by this kind of illogical thinking. And I'm really grateful for your book. It's called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Dr. Gad Sad with us. So good to talk to you, Dr. Sad. Keep up the good work and thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you so much. Cheers.
0: You're welcome. God bless you. And we'll be back right after this. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Thanks for being with us. Just recently, more reports have surfaced about the Chinese government toppling crosses from churches. And one of the Communist Party officials was quoted as saying, crosses must be removed from all churches because Christianity does not belong in China. This is just one of the many accounts of Christian persecution across the globe. And that's why on November 1st, believers across the world will be recognizing the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians, which is a global prayer movement on behalf of believers who boldly And in the run-up to November 1st, the Voice of the Martyrs is releasing some strategic prayer resources and also a short film to bring attention to this great, great problem. We're going to discuss more about it today with Todd Nettleton, spokesman for Voice of the Martyrs and host of the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. So good to have you with us, Todd. How are you doing?
1: I am well. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's a pleasure. Your ministry is very much on top of this issue, obviously. What is the extent of the suffering that Christians are enduring worldwide right now? Can you give us kind of a big picture on the subject of persecution and what Christians are going through?
1: Well, Christians around the world face uh, different challenges depending where they are. More than 70 countries, though, where Christians are currently facing some type of persecution. And that can range from what we might call discrimination, hey, you can't live here, you can't rent an apartment here, you can't have a job here, all the way up to places like North Korea, where Christians are literally laying down their lives rather than deny the name of Christ.
0: Right. So it is very scary what's going on out there. And and talk a little bit about the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. This is an important thing, I think, for everybody to take time and really spend some time on their knees for our brothers and sisters. What, what all goes on on November 1st? Tell people a little bit about that.
1: Well, the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians is a direct response to their number one ask from us. You know, when we go as Voice of the Martyrs, our staff sits down with persecuted Christians around the world, and we say, hey we're going back to America. We're going to talk to the church there. We're going to talk in the media there. How can American Christians help you? What can we do? The first thing they say every single time we ask that question is pray for us. And so the International Day of Prayer is a direct answer to their request that we pray for them. And the challenging thing to me, and I think convicting for all of us is their prayer request is not, hey, pray that we won't be persecuted anymore. Pray that our government will change and and our suffering will end. What they're asking us to pray for is pray that we'll be faithful to Christ in spite of the persecution, in spite of the suffering. So I think that's, like I say, a convicting prayer request for us. But as you mentioned, Voice of the Martyrs has prepared some resources, uh, a short video you can show in your church service, you can show in your Sunday school class, uh, some downloadable resources, a church bulletin insert, some slides with specific prayer requests. We want to equip every church to be involved in this International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians.
0: Well, I think it's fantastic what you're doing. You know, it's interesting, going back to what you just said, when you do discover that persecuted Christians tend not to say, please pray for us that the Lord will alleviate our suffering and, you know, strike down our enemies or what have you, and they tend to talk more about pray that I'll be faithful to Christ even in the midst of all this. Why is that? Because I think for even for many Western Christians, that is a surprising thing. And they probably do wonder, why don't they pray for an end to their own persecution? How do you explain that, Todd?
1: You know, I don't know that I have a uh, sort of doctoral level explanation, but I have a theory. And one of the theories is, um, you know, oftentimes when we come to Christ in America, the gospel presentation that we hear is, you come to jesus and he is going to make your life better here on earth things are going to get better for you you know he wants to meet all your physical needs he wants you to have a better job and so we come to jesus with the idea that that our lives are going to get better in a place like iran or a place like china or a muslim country in the middle east the gospel is not that it is not hey come to jesus and your life here on earth will get better It has come to Jesus, he will forgive your sin, he will walk with you through whatever happens, but your life here on earth is probably going to get worse. There's a good chance your family is going to reject you, there's a good chance you're going to be persecuted. You could even end up in prison, but Jesus will be with you in prison. So when you come to Christ through that kind of a gospel presentation, when hard times come... You don't sort of have this feeling, well, I wonder what happened. I wonder, you know, was God not paying attention, or or how could these bad things have happened to me? It becomes just, yep, this is what I thought was going to happen. This is what Jesus says in the Bible would happen to those who follow him and now it's happening to me, but I can experience his goodness. I can experience his presence in the midst of it. So I think it has to do with the philosophy and, and sort of the way we come to Christ in the first place.
0: That's a great theory. I think you're right on the money about that, and what an example these Christians serve for us who do hear sometimes these faulty gospel presentations come to Jesus and everything will be hunky-dory in your life, which is never promised in Scripture. That's really important. You know, you had mentioned this short film that you guys have put out called Jeanette, Central African Republic, and I did watch that really moving video. Talk a little bit about this place, the Central African Republic, and what's going on there for Christians.
1: Well, what is happening in the Central African Republic is uh, they are in the midst of a civil war. There is battles back and forth between different groups, different tribal groups. But what has happened in the midst of that civil war is Islamist factions in Central African Republic, have sort of used the cover of the civil war to specifically target churches and Christians and pastors. And so we're to the point now where in the country right now there are 30,000 displaced Christians who have been forced out of their homes, forced out of their villages, some of them living in camps, some of them living literally in the bush, uh, but they are under this sort of pressure and persecution. And like I say, yes, There's a civil war going on. Yes, there's all kinds of uh, unrest, but in the midst of that, they are being targeted specifically because they are followers of Christ.
0: Oh, wow. Well, 30,000 Christians, that's not a small number. And I understand also some of these missionary stations and homes are being burned down, and a lot of these Christians are living in these makeshift shelters. Is that still the case? That is
1: still the case. Many of the missionaries have had to leave the country because of the unrest and because of the violence. Uh, Many mission stations have either been overrun or they've been completely destroyed. Uh, And like you say, Christians are living in camps, they're living in tents, they're living under tarps, and some literally out in the bush.
0: Boy, what 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 kind of help are they receiving? I mean, for all of these thousands of Christians who are just kind of in dire straits, what what kind of help are they getting from from other Christians and from you know organizations? What's going on there to help them?
1: Well, there is a real effort to get help to them in the form of humanitarian aid, even like tarps and tents and cooking pots and some just basic necessities, as well as food and shelter. Uh, There is also an effort, and Voice of the Martyrs is part of that, to provide spiritual help as well, along with those humanitarian aid come Bibles and training for pastors. And one of the things we've been involved in is helping people deal with trauma and training one person who can then train eight people, who can then each train eight people and, and get that training out through, because so many have had to go through trauma and are trying to recover from that. And they're trying to wrestle with their faith at the same time of, you know, how could this trauma happen if God was watching over me? And so being able to do that from a biblical perspective and being able to help people work through that and pray through that is a significant need right now.
0: Oh, I can imagine. How does the situation in Central African Republic compare to the rest of Africa right now?
1: You know, because it's in the midst of a civil war, it is a little bit different than like in Nigeria. We we see some of the same kinds of atrocities, some of the same kinds of attacks in northern Nigeria. But it is pretty much, it's Boko Haram, it's the Fulani, it is Islamists coming against Christians. It's not in the context of, oh, by the way, there's this group fighting this group and that group over there. Uh, So I think it's a little more chaotic, maybe, in the Central African Republic. Uh, But like I say, it is it is a place where Christians are targeted for their faith, similar to what we would see in northern Nigeria or in some other places in Africa.
0: Boy, there really is a need for prayer. And that's why we are highlighting November 1st, which is the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. And when we come back, I want to talk more with Todd Nettleton about what else is going on for believers across the world. There's some good news as well. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. How much is one life worth? Most of us would say life is priceless, and we'd be right. After all, what is the value of someone created in the image of God? We're asking Janet Meffer Today listeners, just like you, to help us save babies through the ministry of Preborn. How does Preborn save babies? Through ultrasounds. Preborn works with hundreds of pro-life pregnancy centers across America, providing free ultrasounds for women in crisis pregnancies. And 80% of the time, when a mother sees her little baby on an ultrasound, she'll choose life. It's that easy. We need your help to support the vital work of Preborn in saving human lives. For your gift of $28, you can provide a free ultrasound to a mom in a crisis pregnancy, and for a gift of $140, you can provide 5 ultrasounds to 5 mothers. All you have to do is call 855-402 baby. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you for saving a baby's life. For several years now, Syrians have been pouring into the country of Lebanon to seek refuge amid terrorism and civil war. Now the crisis in Lebanon has escalated in the aftermath of COVID-19, a crumbling economy, and a devastating explosion in Beirut. Yet the spiritual crisis in Lebanon is the most devastating crisis of all because many people there have still never heard anything about Jesus. That's why Heart for Lebanon is on the ground ministering to hurting refugee families in the south and the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, providing emergency supplies, Christian education, Bible studies, and worship gatherings for these refugee families. And the impact is incredible. Your investment of $116 will help two families impacted by the crisis in Lebanon to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel. Jesus for the very first time. A gift of $58 is enough to help one family. Can you help? Call now, 888 247 5499. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we are talking about the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians coming up November 1st. You can get involved. Your church can get involved. The Voice of the Martyrs has all sorts of great prayer resources and even a short film that you can watch and also show to others. You can go to persecution.com slash IDOP persecution.com slash IDOP and get all the resources you need to participate. What an important thing it is to pray for our fellow brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Todd Nettleton is joining us. We were talking a little bit about the Central African Republic, Todd, and you were mentioning this is a a place where there is a civil war going on and you have 30,000 some Christians who've been displaced and driven from their homes there. Lots and lots of bad news. You, You also, though, I know have highlighted some other African nations and given updates on some positive developments, for example, in Sudan. Can you talk a little bit about what is going on in Sudan right now?
1: Well, Sudan is, is a country in transition. The, the Islamist dictator Omar al-Bashir was overthrown last year. They put in power a what they called a transitional council that is supposed to be a three-year process leading to elections and a civilian government. So we're one year into that transition process. But just in the last few months, there have been some major developments for Christians in Sudan and for people who care about religious freedom. In the month of July, the apostasy law was repealed in Sudan. This is a law that says if you're a Muslim and you say tomorrow I want to be a Christian, that's against the law, and it carried a death penalty. So they overthrew the apostasy law in July. In August, the government signed a peace deal with some of the rebel groups, which didn't necessarily affect Christians, but it affects the stability of the country and and just peace and the standard of living there. Then in September, the government promised not to base new laws on Sharia law, the Islamic law. They said, we want to have laws that apply to every religion equally. We're not going to base all of our laws on Islamic law. So you kind of see these things happening, and Christians in the country are like, wow, (laughs) this is serious developed for us we have talked with our contacts in Sudan and one of the things they have said repeatedly is right now nobody's watching (laughs) which is kind of a funny way of saying hey the government has other fish to fry right now they're worried about this they're worried about the laws they're worried about heading towards elections right now nobody's watching us the church So while that's true, we're going to go. We're (laughs) going to go 100 miles an hour. We're going to do everything we can to advance the kingdom. We don't know what will happen in two years when there's supposed to be elections. We don't know what will happen in five years. But the window's open right now, and we are going to go through it. And so that's the attitude of our Sudanese brothers and sisters.
0: Wow. that That is something of a miracle, really, Todd, because uh, Sudan has been a spot for quite a while, and to see those big changes, that really indicates that God is answering people's prayers, doesn't it?
1: It does. And uh, I had a conversation with our Africa regional director on VM Radio about this, and, and we talked about the fact you know, you think back a few years to the story of Miriam Ibrahim. Miriam Ibrahim was a pregnant, born into a Muslim family, a Christian. She was charged under that apostasy law, and she was sentenced to death. And people around the world heard her story and prayed for Sudan. My colleague, Peter Yasek, who works here at Voice of the Martyrs, spent 14 months in prison in Sudan for his work. Yes. And people heard Peter's story, and they prayed for Sudan. And we talked about the fact I think what we're seeing in these positive developments is the fruit of all of those thousands and thousands of people praying for the nation of Sudan. We're experiencing the answer to some of those prayers.
0: That's so neat. Oh, that's so encouraging, too. And Eritrea, there's also some good news there pertaining to prisoners having been released. So that's a good, good development as well, that Christians have been released from prison recently, but yet there are still Christians still imprisoned there as well.
1: Yeah, the the good news is 69 Christians over the last about six weeks have been released from prison. Some of them have been in prison for more than 10 years. So this is long-term prisoners being set free. The government is blaming COVID. They're saying, hey, you know, we have a COVID problem. I've heard some thought that that's really a play for international aid. Here's sort of the bad news. There are still 500 plus Christians in prison in Eritrea. They have not been set free, even if there is COVID in the prison system. And the government hasn't changed the laws. They haven't said to the evangelical churches, okay, it's fine for you to hold services now. It's fine for you to be open. So the laws haven't changed. There are still 500 in prison. But boy, we celebrate and we praise the Lord for 69 Christians who've been allowed to go free and reunite with their families.
0: That is wonderful. Are they all natives of Eritrea or are there any missionaries from other countries who are part of that population?
1: Those are all, as far as I know, Eritrean Christians. But none of them, this is one of the frustrating things about Eritrea. None, no Christian in prison has actually been charged with a crime. None of them have had a trial. None of them have had a lawyer. You just sort of get arrested and you disappear into the prison system. And like I say, for some of these, they've been in prison more than 10 years. Now they've been set free.
0: Incredible. So continue to pray for Eritrea and the Christians there who are still imprisoned without a trial or a lawyer. I can't even imagine how frustrating that is. I had mentioned also at the outside of the interview, Todd, the situation in China, as we know, there has been increasing persecution there as the uh, CCP cracks down, not only on Christians, but also the Uyghurs and some of these other religious minority groups there in China. Uh, You, I know, have asked for prayer for the family of Wang Yi. This is a pastor serving a nine-year prison sentence there for leading an unregistered church. Can you give us a snapshot, not only of this pastor, but of the other pastors in China and Christians who are suffering?
1: Well, Wang Yi is is really a hero uh, of the faith. This is a pastor who led uh, an unregistered church. He was arrested. He was sentenced right after Christmas last year to nine years in prison. He had actually acknowledged and really counted the cost ahead of time. He'd written a letter, He'd given it to some of the leaders in his church and said, hey, when I'm arrested, because I probably will be, when I'm arrested, release this letter publicly. And the letter basically said, I love the Lord. I understand that following Christ in China has a cost, and I'm willing to pay that cost. I'm willing to go to prison. In fact, when his sentence was handed down, he said, I'm not going to appeal this sentence. I will serve my sentence joyfully, because that's what Christ has called me to do. Here's the reason we're asking for prayer for his family. His wife, Jong-Rong, their son, Joshua, they are under very intense pressure from the Communist Party right now. Jong-Rong is basically being kept in isolation. She's not allowed contact with members of the church, even members of her family, so she is very, very isolated. Joshua is picked up every morning in a police car and driven to the Communist Party school where he can be indoctrinated all day long with Communist Party dogma. Uh, And so this family is under very intense pressure. Now here's a little silver lining in the story. Our contacts in China say if in prison, if Wang Yi had compromised, if he'd agreed, okay, I'll just be quiet, I'll stop talking about Jesus probably his family would not be under this kind of pressure. Probably they would have eased off on his family. So what this means is that he is standing boldly and strongly inside the prison, but his family is paying a price for that outside the prison
0: oh my well god bless him and the rest of that family that's got to be very very scary for them and we will keep them in our prayers and again as we're talking about the november 1st international day of prayer for persecuted christians with voice of the martyrs todd nettleton uh, you have these great resources that you're offering not just for individuals right for churches as well how do you recommend that churches use these resources in order to bring attention to the persecuted christians plight
1: You know, uh, the resources help us know who we're praying for. So whether it's the video that we talked about from Central African Republic, the the bulletin insert, some of the other resources that we have, they help us know who we're praying for. But our hope is... Every church will do something for the International Day of Prayer. Some will make it a special part of their prayer time. Some will devote the whole service or the whole day to praying for persecuted Christians. We've had churches that actually will put on an underground church service. They'll Mm -hmm. meet in the basement that week. They'll circulate the secret knock that you have to know in order to get in the building that week. So different churches will do different things. But like I say, the, the hope is every church will do something to remember our persecuted brothers and sisters.
0: Well, I hope so as well. And I know that some churches might be doing it the second Sunday, right, because of the election. But either way, you can get those resources at persecution.com.
1: Absolutely. Second Sunday, third Sunday, but pick a Sunday and pray for our persecuted family.
0: Well that's excellent we do need to do that this is such an important gift I mean to the rest of the church to be able to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters across the world so check out the resources from Voice of the Martyrs for the International Day of Prayer for per- Persecuted Christians just go to persecution.com slash IDOP and you'll find everything there Todd Nettleton thank you so much for being here with us again and thank you for what you guys do we'll be praying for you as well and thank you so much for the information.
1: You are welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: You bet. Take care. God bless you, Todd. And thank you for being here with us on Janet Mefford today. Always a pleasure to have you with us and we'll see you next time.